Welcome to the unofficial Slate Star Codex podcast for February 19th, 2018. Title, Technological Unemployment, Much More Than You Wanted to Know. I am not an economist or an expert on this topic. This is my attempt to figure out what economists and experts think so I can understand the issue. And I'm writing it down to speed your going through the same process. If you have more direct access to economists and experts, feel free to ignore this. Technological unemployment is a hard topic because there are such good arguments on both sides. The argument against. We've had increasing technology for centuries now. People have been predicting that technology will put them out of work since the Luddites, and it's never come true. Instead, one of two things have happened. Either machines have augmented human workers, allowing them to produce more goods at lower prices, and so expanded industries so dramatically that overall they employ more people, or displaced workers from one industry have gone into another, stable boys becoming car mechanics, or the like. There are a bunch of well-known theoretical mechanisms that compensate for technological displacement. See Vivarelli for a review. David Artor gives a vivid example. Quote, Consider the surprising complementaries between information technology and employment in banking, specifically the experience with automated teller machines, ATMs, and bank tellers documented by Besson, 2015. ATMs were introduced in the 1970s, and their numbers in the U.S. economy quadrupled from approximately 100,000 to 400,000 between 1995 and 2010. One might naturally assume that these machines had all but eliminated bank tellers in that interval. But U.S. bank teller employment actually rose modestly, from 500,000 to approximately 550,000 over the 30-year period from 1980 to 2010. Although given the growth in the labor force in this time interval, these numbers do imply that bank tellers declined as a share of the overall U.S. employment. With the growth of ATMs, what are all of these tellers doing? Besson observes that two forces worked in opposite directions. First, by reducing the cost of operating a bank branch, ATMs indirectly increased the demand for tellers. The number of tellers per branch fell by more than a third between 1988 and 2004, but the number of urban bank branches, also encouraged by a wave of bank deregulation allowing more branches, rose by more than 40%. Second, as the routine cash-handling tasks of bank tellers receded, information technology also enabled a broader range of bank personnel to become involved in relationship banking. Increasingly, banks recognized the value of tellers enabled by information technology, not primarily as checkout clerks, but as salespersons, forging relationships with customers and introducing them to additional bank services like credit cards, loans, and investment products. End quote. This kind of thing has been remarkably consistent, so much so that arguments that today 
is the day technological unemployment happens, should be treated with the same skepticism as arguments that today is the day we build a perpetual motion machine that works. The argument in favor... Look, imagine there's a perfect android that can do everything humans do, including management, only better. And suppose it costs $10 to buy and $1 per hour to operate. Surely every business owner would just buy those androids, and then all humans who wanted to earn more than $1 an hour would be totally out of luck. There's no conceivable way the androids would augment human labor, and there's no conceivable way the displaced humans could go into another industry. So at some point, we've got to start getting technological unemployment. Here, the vivid example comes from Gregory Clark. Quote, There was a type of employee at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution whose job and livelihood largely vanished in the early 20th century. This was the horse. The population of working horses actually peaked in England long after the Industrial Revolution, in 1901, when 3.25 million were at work. Though they had been replaced by rail for long-distance haulage and by steam engines for driving machinery, they still plowed fields, hauled wagons and carriages short distances, pulled boats on the canals, toiled in the pits, and carried armies into battle. But the arrival of the internal combustion engine in the late 19th century rapidly displaced these workers so that by 1924 there were fewer than two million. There was always a wage at which all these horses could have remained employed, but that wage was so low that it did not pay for their feed. End quote. There may be some point at which we too stop being worth more than it costs to replace us, and the decline of manufacturing, the increase in labor force non-participation, and despair in rural Rust Belt communities, etc., suggest that point is fast arriving. This is a look at which of those arguments is right. Part 1 will investigate whether unemployment is getting worse. Part 2 will investigate whether that is because of technology. Part 3 will investigate what longer-term trends we should expect. As usual, this is very long. Part 1. Is employment actually getting worse? Officially, it's at historic lows. Post includes chart showing unemployment rate since 1948. Source, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Just assume this for any graph that looks like this. But the real concern isn't about unemployment per se, but the labor force participation rate. From here on, LFPR. Unemployment measures how many people are looking for work. LFPR measures how many people are out of work and not looking. If people are so discouraged that they've given up looking for work, this would not show up in unemployment, but would show up in LFPR. Here's LFPR. Post includes chart showing participation peaked in the late 90s and has been falling since then. Remember, higher means more people working. What's going on here? 
post includes chart showing falling male employment and rising female employment. Same data as before, only disaggregated by gender. From 1950 to 2000, workforce participation rises as women enter the workforce. But throughout this time, men are leaving at almost the same rate, leaving only a moderate net participation gain, and incidentally answering the question that confused me here. See link in post. Around 2000, all the women who want to be in the workforce are there already, and the declining male trend takes over for a net decline, because women's increasing workforce participation is shaped by unrelated cultural trends, most of the rest of this article will focus on male LFPR, from here on, from here on MLFPR. A big fraction of declining MFLPR is baby boomers retiring. If most people are young, workforce participation will be high. If most people are old, workforce participation will be low. Economists adjust for this by taking something called prime age male labor force participation rate from here on, P-A-M-L-F-P-R. If you think all these acronyms are getting annoying, I guarantee you it's more annoying to read papers that just keep saying prime age male labor force participation rate again and again. Here it is. Post includes chart showing number of prime age men with jobs has been falling. Source for this and subsequent similar looking graphs linked to from the post. In the 1950s, approximately 97% of prime age men had a job. Today that number is more like 88%. This is the decline people are worrying about when they talk about technological unemployment or any other threat to work, and it seems to be happening across the Western world. Post includes chart showing falling prime age participation participation across a variety of countries. Frickin' Germany, always making everyone else look bad. The next few paragraphs are based on data from Scott Winship's Mercatus Center report on this. Their conclusion is contrarian, and they're a libertarianish think tank, which means they have some risk of bias. I'm citing them anyway because they have really fascinating data presented much better than anyone else, but keep this in mind. Winship's first point is that the decline in PAMLFPR doesn't seem to be caused by people who can't find jobs. Figure 6. Discouraged workers as a share of prime-age men inactive in the labor force. Chart shows discouragement has mostly been flat. Figure 12. Prime-age men inactive in the labor force by desire for a job. 1969 through 1993. Chart shows desire for a job has mostly been flat. Figure 14, prime-age men inactive in the labor force by desire for a job, 1981 to 2014. Chart shows various categories of people looking for jobs has mostly been flat. The first graph shows officially designated discouraged workers, people who were previously unemployed and looking for jobs but eventually gave up. 
The definition changed around 1990, but they never seemed to be more than about 10% of prime-age male labor force non-participators. From here on, P-A-M-L-F-N-P-ERS. The second graph shows what percent of P-A-M-L-F-N-PERS claimed to be looking for jobs based on a survey that was only given until 1993. It shows only about 20% of them were interested. The third graph is using slightly differently parsed data to try to continue the trends after 1993. It's sort of unfair because it separates out desirability into a separate category and assumes none of them want jobs. But about 30% of people on disability do say they want a job. It's unclear exactly what they mean. Are they just saying they wish they weren't disabled, or that they might be willing to come off disability if a properly non-physically strenuous job became available? But even if we count them, the percent of PAMLFN peers who want a job never goes above 30%. If not discouraged workers who can't find jobs, what's going on? Here's Winship's answer. Figure 11. Rise in male inactivity in the labor force the entire previous year by situation 1968 to 2014. Chart shows causes of inactivity with growth mostly in disability, but also some in school and retired. Prime age non-working men are mostly on disability, but some are also in school. Despite having to be above 25 to be included as prime age, retired, despite having to be below 55, or homemakers. Remember, these are all men. Again, only about 1% out of the total of 12% say they can't find work. If we were very optimistic, we could paint a rosy picture of what's going on here. The increase in disability represents improving social safety net that allows disabled people to be better supported. It's great that more people are financially secure enough to retire early. It's great that more people are pursuing a graduate education that has them in school after the age of 25. It's great that gender stereotypes are decreasing and more men feel comfortable as homemakers, perhaps supported by a working spouse. This is basically Winship's account. Although he is concerned that increasing disability benefits are discouraging work. He cites a bunch of papers to that effect, which you can find in his footnote 42, and which aren't super relevant to the question at hand. But what would the pessimistic interpretation look like? Figure 4. Least educated prime age men now the least likely to be in labor force. The next few graphs and some of the analysis below comes from the Brookings Institute, another potentially biased think tank. In 1970, educated and uneducated men were about equally likely to be PAMLFN peers. The rate for educated men didn't change. The rate for uneducated men shot up. And I won't show you graphs, but there are similar trends for poor people, ex-convicts, blue-collar workers, and minorities. These are not the sort of people who are likely to be able to retire early, pursue graduate school, or defy gender norms. But they are the sort of people who might have trouble finding work. This is pretty suspicious. Also, figure 7. 
Ratio of high school graduate wages to college graduate wages, the men 25 years and older. Chart shows a high of 77% in 1979, dropping to around 52% in 2015. Figure 6, manufacturing employment has fallen 30% in 30 years. Labor force non-participation is increasing primarily in poor and lower middle class people without a lot of good options, just as their remaining options get much worse. Surely this suggests something worse is going on. The easiest place for this to happen is disability. It doesn't require disability fraud, per se. It just requires some people on the threshold of disability who are motivated by marginal cost-benefit analysis. Suppose that you have bad back pain. You work in an auto factory, like your father and his father before him. Your back pain flares up pretty often, but you know your foreman pretty well, and he gives you an easy shift until it passes. And the union makes sure that nobody gives you any grief about it. You like your company and your co-workers, and you want to make them happy. Also, if you didn't work, you would starve to death. Now suppose that your factory closes, and the only job available is being a home health aide. This involves a lot of bending over and puts you in constant, almost unbearable pain. And it's run by a giant, faceless corporation which always seems to be trying to screw you over. Also, you live in West Virginia and are very manly. And changing diapers in nursing homes seems like undignified women's work. Also, the pay is half of what you're used to. Also, the government just passed a new law making disability benefits much more generous and easier to get. So, figure 10. Prime age men out of labor force report worse health status than those in labor force. The graph shows that PAMLFN peers generally have terrible health. So real disabilities must have something to do with this. But Winship presents a lot of evidence that illnesses and chronic pain haven't gotten worse over time, so I can't fully explain the rise. The gradually worsening job pushes person with serious disability over the edge hypothesis has a lot going for it. Also, although 96% of people on disability say they're out of work because of health problems, 46% also say they're out of work because there are no good jobs available. The problem with this. Disability really doesn't represent that much of the rise in PAMLFNP since 1960. Looking at our graph above, it goes from 2% of workers in 68 to maybe 6% of workers now. And surely some large fraction of those people are actually disabled in ways that have nothing to do with their social circumstances. We're talking like two percentage points. Tops. Okay, fine. Let's say you're our West Virginian factory worker again, only now you can't get on disability. Now what? Maybe you choose to retire. And maybe you're 53 years old, and this isn't the most reasonable financial plan, but you own your own house, you get food stamps, and you can do odd jobs around your friend's farm to make some extra money. Or maybe you choose to go to that ridiculous coal miner to coder school that got profiled on NPR a little while ago, in the hopes that you can have a pathway to a new career, 
or just so that you have something to do. Or maybe you choose to stay at home with your kids while your wife does the home health aid thing. And if anybody asks, you're a stay-at-home dad. And then when economists look at the statistics, they say, oh, look, there's no problem here. It's just a combination of retirees, students, homemakers, and the disabled. I realize this is a stretch, especially since you would expect such a person, unless they were very self-deluded, to identify as looking for work. But the only sense I can make of all this is a model where the more miserable your work is, and the more decent options you have available to you, the more likely you are to leave work. If you're very conservative, you might say, Aha! I knew that people were just unemployed because they're lazy. But if you're more progressive, you might ask, Exactly how miserable do you have to be before you stop working? Should people with broken legs literally drag themselves on all fours to their workplace just because it's not physically impossible? I know that I refuse to do this job because it's too undignified for me. Let me go on the public dole. It doesn't really win you a lot of social credit. But maybe conservatives could find it in their heart to be sympathetic to our hypothetical West Virginia factory worker with a bad back who's proud of having worked his whole life, but who feels like having to pivot at age 53 to changing diapers in nursing homes for minimum wage isn't his cup of tea. Remember, the other thing that's way up among this same demographic is suicide, and probably for the same reason. But even if we assume half the increase in disability, plus a quarter of the increase in the other things, is due to un due to employment issues, employment issues still really only explain about three percentage points of the 10% increase since the 1960s. I can't think of any reasonable assumptions where they explain more than half. I like Derek Thompson's discussion of this question, because he's the only writer who seems to share my sense of puzzlement. There are all these men who seem miserable and who have vanished from the labor force, We all know it's true, but the statistics don't really seem to reflect or shed light on it. Somehow we, as a country, have managed to just lose several million working-age men. Maybe Donald Trump is going to look behind the White House couch one day and find a large portion of the male population of the Southeast under the cushion. I don't know. In the next part, we'll talk about whether automation explains this decline in labor force participation. But let's keep in mind that the argument that there is a significant, meaningful decline in labor force participation to explain, aside from people going to school and having more access to disability benefits and things like that, is not on super solid ground. Part 2. Recently, U.S. manufacturing jobs collapsed. U.S. manufacturing is still doing just fine in terms of number of widgets produced. It just no longer employs that many people. U.S. manufacturing jobs millions, 1939 to 2014. Chart shows manufacturing jobs with a peak in 1979, mostly declining since then. This report linked above is from Ball State University and argues that, while manufacturing has thrived, 
automation has reduced the need for workers so much that lots of them have been laid off. Quote, Had we kept 2,000 levels of productivity and applied them to 2,010 levels of production, we would have required 20.9 million manufacturing workers. Instead, we employed only 12.1 million. End quote. The report gets summarized in a few places as 13% of job loss is due to trade, 87% is due to increasing productivity slash automation, which seems like a fair summary of some of its claims. Its numbers are not too far off the conclusions of economists Artur, Dorn, and Hansen, who published a series of papers finding that Import competition explains one quarter of the contemporaneous aggregate decline in U.S. manufacturing employment, and also connects it to the rise in disability benefits and other government transfer payments. But this raises more questions than it answers. Why didn't previous eras of improving automation result in job loss? In fact, hasn't productivity growth been especially bad lately? Yes. See, for example, this Brookings paper, which notes that, quote, the past decade has seen slowdowns in measured labor productivity growth across a broad swath of developed economies. Aggregate labor productivity growth in the U.S. averaged 1.3% per year from 2005 to 2015, less than half of the 2.8% average annual growth rate it sustained over 1995 to 2004. Similarly sized decelerations were observed between the two periods in 28 of 29 other countries for which OECD has compiled productivity growth data. It continues, The drop in productivity growth has struck some as paradoxical, given the seemingly brisk pace of technological progress and plethora of new products that have been introduced and diffused throughout the world during the slowdown period. Indeed, many have suggested that the slowdown is substantially illusory, a figment of the inability to correct, of correct economic statistics to capture the true rate of technological advance in standard productivity metrics. End quote. If the productivity slowdown were illusory, that would help explain all those job losses. Sounds promising, but what do all the economists in the world think? Missing productivity growth. The biggest reason for the measured slowdown in U.S. productivity growth since the mid-2000s is that productivity increases have gone mismeasured, including new and better products and services that have been insufficiently captured by real output data. Chart shows that most economists disagree with or are uncertain about this statement, with the disagreement growing if you factor in their confidence. Justin Fox has some more in-depth analysis here, link in post, and also concludes productivity is not that great. One possibility is excellent productivity growth from about 1985 to 2005, followed by poor productivity growth thereafter. All this discussion of poor productivity growth comes from the post-2005 period, but the job losses are from the 1985-2005 period, and the reason jobs are still declining is that it took factories a while to shut down 
all the obsolete plants and fire the obsolete workers. It looks like maybe this is true, though I have low confidence in it. If so, that would explain half the puzzle. The other half is why there have been job losses now instead of some other time in the hundred or so years that manufacturing productivity was increasing. Are we allowed to say that's just how things work? Like agricultural productivity increased for millennia, but didn't lead people to abandon agricultural agriculture en masse until the Industrial Revolution, when it did exactly that? In 1790, 90% of Americans were farmers, even though agricultural productivity has had been improving for ages. Today, 2.6% of Americans are. Maybe manufacturing just had the same kind of moment. Advances in technology can put farmers out of work, but shift them to manufacturing. Surely it can put manufacturers out of work and shift them to... Question mark? Question mark? Question mark? So if 70% to 80% of manufacturing job losses were due to automation, might automation be responsible for the decline in PAMLFPR, thus revealing the elusive technological unemployment? Eh, let's look at those graphs again. First, manufacturing jobs over time. Second, PAMLFPR. Manufacturing Jobs Millions, 1939 to 2014, peak in 1979, declining since then. Chart showing PAMLFPR, peak in 1954, declining since then. PAMLFPR has been going down consistently since 1960 or so. Has it accelerated recently? Probably just the recession. And the number of U.S. manufacturing jobs only started to really go down in 2000. Number of former workers on disability. Chart shows flat until around 1990 at less than 3%, and then growing to nearly 9% in 2011. Nor is there any sign that disability claims started to go up around 2000. There is a general trend of increasing disability since 1985, but a paper by Artor and Duggan suggests this is almost entirely due to a reform of the disability system around 1984, which made it easier to get benefits. Even though everybody seems to agree that the decline of manufacturing equals increasing disability claims equals decline in PAMLFNP, it's really hard to conclude this from the data. The two just totally fail to correlate. It's hard to find good numbers from before 1999, but it looks like opioid deaths show something like the expected pattern, rocketing way up just after the fall of manufacturing jobs. That makes it especially suspicious that disability and PAMLFP don't show the same pattern. So here's the trilemma. One, either technological unemployment has nothing to do with declining PAMLFPR. Or the collapse of U.S. manufacturing isn't an unusually good example of technological unemployment. And actually, we've been getting technological unemployment at a continuous rate since 1960. Three, 
or there was some mysterious factor causing PAMLFPR rates to rise from 1960 to 2000 that mysteriously stopped, and then a new factor, technological unemployment, which was exactly the same magnitude as the previous factor and looks exactly the same to the naked eye, instantly took over. Let's ask all the economists in the world again. Robots. Question A. Advancing automation has not historically reduced unemployment in the United States. Most economists agree. When you factor in confidence, they agree even more. Question B. Information technology and automation are a central reason why median wages have been stagnant in the U.S. over the past decade. Most economists agree. Most economists agree even more strongly if confidence is factored in. Economists very strongly believe automation has not historically reduced unemployment, but they do believe automation is making wages stagnant right now. I don't really understand what's going on here. Are they saying that automation can depress wages but not reduce employment? Surely, given the existence of a minimum wage, that doesn't make sense. Or are they saying that automation never caused any problems before, but it is causing problems now? The site offers some of the economists the chance to explain what they meant, and a lot of them seem to be saying that automation has temporarily caused problems in the past but they always resolve with time as new industries open up. Maybe we're just in a temporary bad period. Likewise, one economist who agrees that automation caused wage stagnation says that it may have a short-run impact, but there is no reason to believe that it is permanent. All of this is a mess. But the impression I get from this mess is that there is little sign of technological unemployment happening today. I get this from a few sources. First, the official unemployment rate looks great. So if we were going to make this argument, we would have to do it off of PAMLFPR. Second, Winship's optimistic take on PAMLFPR is hard to easily refute. The PAML F and peers pretty clearly say they're not looking for jobs, and they're just perfectly innocuous students, retirees, etc. We have trouble believing them, especially based on their demographics, but it's very hard to look at the increase and see a place where unemployment issues could have slipped in. Third, it's very hard to find a temporal correlation between the apparent effects of automation on manufacturing and the rise in PAMLFPR. PAMLFPR has been rising very steadily since the 1960s, and doesn't seem to have noticed the manufacturing collapse. Disability payments have been rising steadily since the disability system was reformed in 1984, and also don't seem to have noticed the manufacturing collapse. Fourth, most economists appear to remain doubtful of the possibility of long-term technological unemployment. I realize this goes against common sense. Maybe I'm missing something and totally wrong here. But if I am forced to interpret the data as I see it, I just don't see the signs of technological unemployment. 
It's just not happening. And in my defense, this also seems to be the opinion of David Artor, the main economic expert on this subject. In an interview with The Economist, he said that there was zero evidence that AI is having a new and sufficiently different impact on employment. Part 3. This doesn't mean everything is great. As the IGM panel shows, even if robots aren't putting people out of work, they may be causing wages to stagnate. The people getting kicked out of manufacturing jobs may have other jobs available to them, and so not end up affecting the PAMLFPR numbers, but those jobs may not be as good or pay as well. This isn't technological unemployment, but it might be technological underemployment. Most people expect the technological unemployment will hit the least skilled first, but that doesn't seem to be entirely true. This chart and some of the following analysis are going to be from the Heritage Association, another potentially biased think tank, but hopefully without much reason to obfuscate these issues. Chart. Moderately skilled occupations see smallest job growth. Chart shows low growth in the middle, but good growth on either end. The best-paying jobs, managers, professionals, and the like, are doing fine. The lowest-paying jobs, like personal care and food, are also doing fine. It's the middle-paying jobs that are in trouble. Some of these are manufacturing, but there are also office office and administrative positions in the same categories. This is potentially consistent with the story where the jobs that have been easiest to automate are middle-class-ish. Some jobs require extremely basic human talents the machines can't yet match, like a delivery person's ability to climb stairs. Others require extremely arcane human, human talents, likewise beyond machine abilities, like a scientist discovering new theories of physics. The stuff in between, proofreading, translating, record-keeping, metalworking, truck-driving, welding, is more in danger. As these get automated away, workers, in accord with the theory, migrate to the unautomatable jobs, since they might not have the skills or training to do the unautomatable upper-class jobs, they end up in the unautomatable lower-class ones. There's nothing in economic orthodoxy that says this can't happen. David Artor and his giant block of citations agree. Quote, because jobs that are intensive in either abstract or manual tasks are generally found at opposite ends of the occupational skill spectrum, in professional, managerial, and technical op- occupations on the one hand, and in service and labor occupations on the other, this reasoning implies that computerization of routine job tasks may lead to the simultaneous growth of high-education, high-wage jobs on one end and low-education, low-wage jobs on the other end, both at the expense of middle-wage, middle-education jobs, a phenomenon that Goose and Manning, 2003, called job polarization. A large body of U.S. and international evidence confirms the presence of employment polarization at the level of industries, localities, and national labor markets. Here follows a long list of citations I won't bother reading. The fall of middle-skilled level jobs has led to corresponding fall in middle-income jobs. 
Figure 3, change in occupational employment shares in low, middle, and high-wage occupations in 16 EU countries, 1993 to 2010. Chart shows middle-wage jobs getting slaughtered. Note that contrary to an extremely pessimistic picture, this would suggest that most people who leave middle-paying jobs go to higher-paying jobs. And with a corresponding decline in the fortunes of the middle class. Chart 3. Highest and lowest incomes see fastest increases. For non-elderly households without children, the fastest-growing income brackets have been those at the top and bottom. Note that this does not really back up the optimistic picture from above. Why is this happening now, when technological progress has been going on forever? This gets into the whole decline of the middle class argument. A giant political morass featuring deunionization, regulation, automation, globalization, the 1%, and pretty much everything else. Is there also a role for today's robots, just plain being better than yesterday's Rolodexes and whatever else the forefront of technology was? Or are education system being less able to cope with them? I'm not sure. As far as I know, there is no economic theory stating that the number or percent of high-skilled jobs must always stay the same. I'm also not sure how to include fixed cognitive skills, e.g. some people are smarter than others, in this question. An optimist might argue that things will get better as today's obsoletely trained workforce retires and tomorrow's trained-for-the-appropriate-jobs workforce graduates. But maybe this is better viewed as a race between two competing forces, generational churn producing students with the right set of skills and technology making new skills obsolete. I don't know why this should have increased recently, but it seems like, at least for the middle class, this is a race they are now losing. Part 4. Predicting the future is naturally harder than observing the past, since we have data about the present and not the future. But the data about the present is contradictory and incomprehensible, and just makes things more confusing. So we might as well try going with the future and seeing how we do there. We'll start with those surveys of economists again, since they seem like the people most likely to know. Here's a panel of top European economists on the future of technological unemployment. Robots and Artificial Intelligence Question A. Holding labor market institutions and job training fixed, rising use of robots and artificial intelligence is likely to increase substantially the number of workers in advanced countries who are unemployed for long periods. Chart shows pretty even split among economists even when confidence is factored in with maybe a slight tilt towards, towards agreeing with this statement. In the same survey, 93% of economists with an opinion on the issue agreed that the economic benefits of robots will be so great that they could be used to compensate the workers who were negatively effective. But in a survey I conducted in my imagination, 100% of people who have not been living in a cave for the past 200 years agreed that this will never happen in real life. So economists really have no idea about any of this. What are we paying them for, anyway? 
Frey and Osborne analyze what jobs are most susceptible to automation. They claim that 47% of total U.S. employment is at risk. This sounds suspiciously precise, and it's unclear their numbers have any relationship to reality. They do find evidence that wages and educational attainment exhibit a strong negative relationship with an occupation's probability of computerization. Overall, none of this seems to be making things much clearer. I've cited David Artor something like five times already. He is the recognized expert in this area. I blame nominative determinism. And has written widely. His own opinion is, quote, I expect that a significant stratum of middle-skill jobs combining specific vocational skills with foundational middle skills levels of literacy, numeracy, adaptability, problem-solving, and common sense will persist in coming decades. My conjecture is that many of the tasks currently bundled into these jobs cannot readily be unbundled, with machines performing the middle-skill tasks and workers performing only a low-skill residual, without a substantial drop in quality. This argument suggests that many of the middle-skill jobs that persist in the future will combine routine technical tasks with the set of non-routine tasks in which workers hold comparative advantage. Interpersonal interaction, flexibility, adaptability, and problem-solving. In general, these same demands for interaction frequently privilege face-to-face interactions over remote remote performance, meaning that these same middle-skill occupations may have relatively low susceptibility to offshoring. Lawrence Katz memorably titles workers who virtuously combine technical and interpersonal tasks as the new artisans. See Friedman, 2010, and Holzer, 2015. Documents, the new middle-skill jobs are in fact growing rapidly, even as traditional production and clerical occupations contract. This prediction has one obvious catch. The ability of the U.S. education and job training system, both public and private, to produce the kinds of workers who will thrive in these middle-skill jobs of the future can be called into question. In this and other ways, the issue is not that middle-class workers are doomed by automation and technology, but instead that human capital investment must be at the heart of any long-term strategy for producing skills that are complemented by rather than substituted for by technological change. In 1900, the typical young native-born American had only a common school education, about the equivalent of 6th to 8th grades. By the late 19th century, many Americans recognized that this level of schooling was inadequate. Farm employment was declining, industry was rising, and their children would need additional skills to earn a living. The United States responded to this challenge over the first four decades of the 20th century by becoming the first nation in the world to deliver universal high school education to its citizens, Golden and Katz, 2008. Tellingly, the high school movement was led by the farm states, 
societal adjustments to earlier waves of technological advancement were neither rapid, automatic, nor cheap, but they did pay off handsomely. End quote. Do we really have evidence that compulsory schooling was a result of increasing automation? If so, we could tell a story where the gradually increasing length of schooling, from minimal to primary school to high school to you better get a college degree or you'll regret it later, to increasing pressure to go to graduate school, is a reaction to automation and the threat of technological unemployment? Could this be the reason why automation finally seems to be causing problems, a financial and cultural inability to extend schooling any farther than it's already gone? Or, inspired by Brian Kaplan's The Case Against Education, could we tell the opposite story? One where increasing credentialism makes it harder for people whose jobs have been automated to switch careers the way they did before? Higher-paying jobs no longer just require skills, they require a college degree in a relevant field, which is very hard for a mature worker to get. Being an office manager and being a nurse are both middle-income jobs. But in the past, an office worker would have needed about six months of inexpensive training plus a lot of on-the-job apprenticeship to become a nurse, whereas now they would need a four-year bachelor's of science in nursing from a university whose price tag has decuppled for no reason over the last half century. A now unemployed office manager might have been able to afford the first, even if middle class, the second might well be beyond her reach. Unable to shift into another middle-class job, she is forced to take a lower-class job as a fast-food worker or something. I am not entirely sure how differences in cognitive ability fit in here. My guess is to a first approximation, they don't. If standard economic theory is correct, it should be possible to create middle-paying jobs that use the full potential of people with any amount of cognitive ability, taking advantage of various human cognition skills that are difficult to automate. Although some naive takes, like, everyone should just become a programmer, fail to understand this, I don't think the entire argument is based on misunderstandings of this point, or that it forms a particularly strong counter-argument. Anyway, if Artur's prediction is we will be able to weather this danger as long as our education system is able to rise to meet the challenge. I'm just going to round this off to we're super doomed. But I think his methodology of noticing that we always met the challenge before and trying to figure out what might be different this time is a promising one. Finally, we've been talking about economists a lot here. But what about the roboticists? Aren't they relevant too? Grace et al. survey top AI researchers on when AI might be able to replace humans in various things. These researchers don't necessarily know anything about economics, but they at least know something about progress in robotics. On average, they believe AI will reach human performance at truck driving, retail selling, translation, transcription, and bipedal running all before 2030. Whether those robots will be affordable, widely adopted, or able to deal with the long tail of real-world situations like blackouts or vandals or bad weather is a different story. 
The point is, roboticists are pretty sure they'll have their contribution to the economic takeover ready pretty soon. They do say robots won't be writing best-selling novels until 2050, so J.K. Rowling's job is safe for now. They also say that robots will be able to do all human tasks, including novel writing, science, and further AI research, sometime between 2050 and 2150. At that point, obviously, all bets are off, and we have a lot more than unemployment to worry about. Part 5. Here are some tentative conclusions. 1. Technological unemployment is not happening right now, at least not at a rate above previous eras. The official statistics are confusing and sometimes seem to deny common sense, but they show no signs of increases in this phenomenon. 70% confidence. 2. On the other hand, there are signs of technological underemployment. Robots taking middle skill jobs and then pushing people into other jobs. Although some people will be pushed into higher skill jobs, many will be pushed into lower skill jobs. This seems to be what happened to the manufacturing industry recently. 70% confidence. This sort of thing has been happening for centuries, and in theory, everyone should eventually adjust. But there are some signs that they aren't. This may have as much to do with changes to education, to the educational, political, and economic system as with the nature of robots per se. 60% confidence. 4. Economists are genuinely divided on how this is going to end up, and whether this will be just a temporary blip while people develop new skills, or the new normal. Approximately 100% confidence. 5. Technology seems poised to disrupt lots of new industries very soon, and could replace humans entirely sometime within the next 100 years. Question mark, question mark, question mark. This is a very depressing conclusion. If technology didn't cause problems, that would be great. If technology made lots of people unemployed, that would be hard to miss, and the government might eventually be willing to subsidize something like a universal basic income. But we won't get that. We'll just get people being pushed into worse and worse jobs, in a way that does not inspire widespread sympathy or collective action. The prospect of educational, social, or political intervention remains murky. This audio version of Slate Star Codex is provided with the permission of Scott Alexander. I am not Scott. I'm Jeremiah. And you can find me at wearenotsaved.com, where I also have a podcast. For anyone wishing to reference this content, please do so by linking to the original post. If you think having an audio version of Slate Star Codex is valuable and you have nothing better to do with your money, consider donating at patreon.com slash sscpodcast or leave us a review somewhere. Until next time.